What did you hear about Mostly Redeemer in the gay community? Basically that it was a, a gay Catholic church. And I was like, what? A gay Catholic church? I was astounded. I never heard of such a thing. I met Tom Badapaglia on a warm late fall day in San Francisco. Okay, well, yeah. okay. How are you? Nice haircut? I'm good. Well, thank you. You like yeah, Good, yeah. yeah. Looks good. Just for you, you know. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> Too bad we're not filming. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he was giving me a tour of the Castro, the iconic neighborhood that began attracting large numbers of gay men and women from around the country in the 1970s. So, do you want to go for a little stroll and we'll Perfect. talk? Yeah. Okay, well, um, you know, like you said, when I moved here, it wasn't totally gay, but it was. Know, the, the, the straight people sort of kept away uh, because we were a little bit too wild for them, you know. Sure. I mean, you know, you see naked guys hanging out the window, you know, you know it's, it's, and you're with the baby stroller, it doesn't, sure, it's not good. So There are lots of gay bars around, but it's a bit tamer. I didn't see anyone naked. The crosswalks are painted with rainbow stripes. Men walk down the street holding hands. Tom told me, the locals see it as a kind of gay Disney world. I met up with Tom here because he wanted to tell me about his parish, Most Holy Redeemer Catholic Church. He said that a few decades ago, a friend told him about this church in the Castro and invited Tom to join him one Sunday at his, quote, gay Catholic church. But anyway, I was like sh- amazed that it was because I never heard of such a thing. And I went and I felt really at home there. Had you, had you been missing being part of a parish, or you didn't realize you had been missing it? Or like, what was that? I had been missing it, yes. What were you Very missing? much. Uh, that sense of community, and plus being around other gay people and feeling that spirit was wonderful. Hundreds of gay men eventually joined the parish, including Tom. Tom was also one of the many served by the parish's new HIV and AIDS support group which was created as the AIDS crisis began to wreak havoc on the Castro. He saw how AIDS affected the parish. Uh, And the church did a lot to uh, help people with AIDS, and they still do. I mean, I'm HIV positive, and I have lymphoma, and I go to a support group at the church. When Tom moved to San Francisco, he enjoyed the scene. He was a bartender. He said his best friends were gorgeous drag queens. I asked him if he ever felt torn about reconciling that part of his life with his Catholic faith. He said absolutely not. In fact, quite the opposite. No, I was not torn at all. I thought it was great. Yeah, because, you know, I was brought up Catholic, you know, and, uh, and you know, I knew what the Catholic Church felt about gay people. I mean, yeah, my father was very homophobic. And my mother was not. And my father was very involved in the church, the parish in the Bronx. So, I mean, when I found out, I mean, it was just wonderful. It was, like, very liberating to go to a Catholic church that was mostly gay and, you know, didn't sing you the song about, oh, you're going to be burned in hell, you know? So it was wonderful. Tom says Most Holy Redeemer is described as a gay Catholic church because most of its parishioners identify that way and because it's ministered to gay Catholics for years. If there were such a thing as a pilgrimage for gay Catholics, this place would most definitely be on the trail. This was the main drag. This was where all of the, everything was going on, you know? I mean, demonstrations, parties, I mean, and Most Holy Redeemer was right there. We were right in the middle of it.
The location of the parish suggests that, of course, this place would be friendly to gay Catholics. But that was never inevitable. In fact, the history of Most Holy Redeemer shows that the survival of this parish was once very much in doubt. It took a delicate balance of an innovative pastor, committed gay parishioners, and open-minded old ladies to bring life to this now iconic church. As if that wasn't difficult enough, the revitalization of the parish was done in the crucible of the AIDS crisis. But the parish didn't just survive. It transformed itself into a place where the neighborhood it served could rely on it for spiritual sustenance and physical help. As one member put it to us, Most Holy Redeemer became a place that helped save souls and save lives. In short, it became a model for what a parish should be. From America Media, I'm Michael O'Loughlin. This is Plague, untold stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. As someone who's gay and Catholic, I wanted to learn how people before me have managed this sometimes difficult identity. No time in modern history has been more volatile for gay Catholics than the height of the AIDS epidemic. So I've spent the last few years interviewing people who are right in the middle of it. People who fought, worked, and grieved through it. More after the break. Support for this podcast comes from the Catholic Health Association. CHA represents the nation's largest group of non-profit healthcare providers, with more than 600 hospitals and 1,600 long-term care and other health facilities in all 50 states. The Catholic Health Ministry cares for one in seven patients in the U.S. Learn more at chausa.org. We'll get to how this small Catholic church became a fixture in one of the most iconic gay neighborhoods in the world. But first, some history. I'm Donald Godfrey. I'm a Jesuit priest at the University of San Francisco, where I'm the Associate Director for Faculty and Staff Spirituality in University Ministry. One day in November, Father Godfrey drove from his office at the University of San Francisco to meet me at Most Holy Redeemer Parish. He wrote the book on Most Holy Redeemer, literally, It's called Gays and Grays. That's the name the former pastor gave to the two communities who comprised the parish in the 1980s. Could we go talk to the church real quick? Of course, absolutely. Father Godfrey gave me a tour of the church. Around the perimeter were framed photos of parishioners who had passed away, part of the church's efforts to remember those who have died. He recognized several faces from three decades earlier, when he was a young Jesuit in training who was stationed at Most Holy Redeemer. 1986, uh, this is the, the scroll of those who, it was begun with, for those who died from AIDS, so Donald Denny, Liz Gates, Robert Durkin. That was before I was here, so I didn't know those people. Father Godfrey and I spoke for a while inside the parish rectory a large, older building that includes residences for priests, a couple of offices, and a dining room. Back in the 1980s and 90s, that was where the AIDS support group met. 
He told me about the history of Catholic San Francisco, in this neighborhood in particular. Most of the people in this area would have been Catholic. People at that time in San Francisco described themselves according to what parish they belonged to, a Catholic parish, even if they weren't Catholic. So this was Most Holy Redeemer Parish, and people here identified with this parish, even if they weren't Catholic. And a lot of the life of this community, Eureka Valley, as it was called then, revolved around this church. He said that back in the 50s, what's now known as the Castro was home to young, working-class families. As the economy changed and these families moved out to the suburbs, the neighborhood sort of fell into disrepair. Big old houses were now vacant, and real estate prices plummeted. In the 60s and 70s, a new crowd moved in from all around the country, people like Tom, who you heard from earlier. And many of them were gay men. Many of them ended up coming to this neighborhood, partly because the prices were low, partly because San Francisco is relatively friendly to them compared to some cities, although, uh, as we discovered, it had a long way to go. And so there was a new community coming into the Castro, and the old-timers, for the most part, saw them as the invaders. They called them the invaders. At Most Holy Redeemer, some older parishioners stayed put. They remained in the neighborhood, even as it transformed into a hub for gay people. The changing face of the neighborhood presented challenges for the parish. But the local archbishop, named John Quinn, saw what was happening, and he appointed a priest he trusted to figure out what to do. When the new pastor arrived, he knew the parish was in trouble. Well, it was kind of on the, the skids in the sense that the school had closed, the convent had closed, uh, the numbers at Mass were down, and after... The That's Father Tony McGuire. He arrived at Most Holy Redeemer in 1983. It wasn't exactly a plum appointment, as he described it to me. The parish definitely did not reflect the neighborhood. So he decided he had to do something if the parish was going to stay open. I brought together a group of mainly older parishioners and then a couple of gays. And one of the principal factors, even among kind of hard-headed old parishioners who didn't like the change. They said that something has to be done in the parish. They were convinced that something needed to be done. And they were open to reaching out to the gay community and having them become part of the community. Father Tony was on board, as were the few gay parishioners who were already attending Most Holy Redeemer. But some of the older parishioners definitely were not. Father Tony recalls a meeting with about 10 people, some gays and some grays, where he pitched the idea of going out into the gay community to bring in new people. And it was kind of unanimous of 10 people that they would, I shouldn't say unanimous, it was about of the 10, maybe eight were very strong, and eventually a couple moved to another parish. Because of? Yeah, they just weren't comfortable with that environment. This was the dynamic over the next couple of years, as the parish tried to serve its neighborhood. Most people got on board. Some of the older folks were not willing to accept it, and they moved on to neighboring parishes. It turns out that older people set in their ways weren't the only challenge for Father Tony. He remembers that dignity, 
the gay and lesbian Catholic group you heard about in the first episode, they wanted to hold a special mass for gay Catholics at Most Holy Redeemer. But Father Tony was skeptical. He was afraid of dividing up the gays and the grays. Right, and that was actually one of the big issues. The dignity wanted to come to the parish and be settled there. And, of course, the gays wanted it. The grays, we call them, the other, the older people, they didn't want it. And I was conflicted. <laughs> After careful consideration, Father Tony decided not to let dignity into the parish. That didn't mean his priority of welcoming gay people to Most Holy Redeemer had changed. It was the opposite. He said he just wanted to welcome the gay community in a different way. Instead of there being one mass for the gays and another for the remaining grays, Father Tony wanted the parish to reflect the makeup of the neighborhood. Even though the Castro was changing, the gays and the grays were still living alongside each other. And Father Tony wanted them to worship together too. Slowly but surely, that started to happen. One cup of coffee at a time. Well, first of all, some of it became just spontaneous and so we used to have coffee and donuts after mass in the rectory and just a lot of people would come and you know, they'd meet each other and it was very casual but over the time a kind of a certain familiarity grew and a sense of yeah we're all in this together and so there was that kind of mellowing, and that was very helpful. Older parishes can sometimes be reluctant to change, more preoccupied with maintaining the status quo than addressing new challenges. But under Father Tony's direction, Most Holy Redeemer did something different. Parishioners went out into the community to meet the gay residents who had moved into the Castro. They put up welcoming banners, they even placed ads in gay newspapers. Eventually, more and more gay Catholics started coming to Mass. Some of the old-timers were a bit unsettled at first. But Father Tony remembers one Christmas when he realized his plan was working. Right, yeah, well, as I mentioned, things had gone downhill. <laughs> and uh, the kind of normal patterns just fell apart. There was no crib at Christmas, there was no a special Christmas gathering of any kind. And so the gays, a couple of guys got together and they really made up a beautiful Christmas scene and, you know, put garlands all over the... Well, the old ladies particularly were just delighted. They were so pleased to see something alive, you know. So that was a very positive step forward. One of the guys who helped out with the nativity scene was named Cliff Morrison. Cliff had moved to San Francisco in the 1970s, part of that wave of gay men seeking acceptance. He grew up Catholic and decided to seek out a church in his new city. He found Most Holy Redeemer early on, before the transformation of the parish. He remembers just a few gay guys attending. He was part of that effort to get other gay Catholics to consider attending as well. You know, how can, how can we reach out? How can we make these people feel comfortable enough to come to us? And I said, Father, Half of these guys are Catholic. They come from all over the country, the Midwest and the South, just like me. And they left the church because they didn't feel welcome. I said, we just have to figure out a way to welcome them. So we did this whole campaign for Christmas called Come Home for Christmas. 
and that started the whole thing, and it was wonderful. I mean, we filled that church in no time. We got out. We, you know, it didn't take much. There were so many. As for the nativity, Cliff said that it helped show people on the outside that something special was happening inside. Yes, I wow, I'd forgotten all about that. But yeah, yeah, we built uh, we built this beautiful nativity uh, out in the courtyard, um, and you know it was beautifully lighted, and people started coming, and you know it was kind of like it was a very solemn thing at night. You'd see candles and people praying, and you know it just it really very quickly most holy redeemer became you know just a focal point in the neighborhood we'll hear more from cliff in a second but let's get back to the challenges facing the parish father tony said that despite the good relationships forming between the gays and the grays the aids epidemic ushered in new tensions between the two groups then when the AIDS epidemic became more critical, people were nervous about being friends with gays and being too close to them. Because there, there was not a lot of understanding about how this all happened. And it, it's true all over. Nobody really knew what was going on in the beginning, and even the doctors. And then eventually... We had some medical people in the parish who were very skilled and who came before the community after Mass and would explain, this is what it's about, this is the origin, this is what you have to be careful of, this is what you don't have to be worried about, and help educate the One of those medical people Father Tony referred to was Cliff. In addition to being a parishioner, Cliff was also a nurse at San Francisco General Hospital. He remembers his first interaction with someone who had AIDS. Uh, the first person I saw looking back on it with, with HIV was my roommate. And he became very sick. I came home one day and found him laying in the hallway. And he was delirious. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, what is this? Uh, he worked at San Francisco General as a per diem nurse and didn't really have any health care benefits. So... I uh, checked in with a colleague of mine at the hospital and said, oh, you know, well, there's a doctor in, in town that will probably see him. So a couple of days later, I got an appointment for him, and we took him in, and immediately they admitted him into uh, an isolation uh, room and stopped me at the door and said, no, you can't go in unless you put on all this protective equipment. And I said, no, I've been taking care of this guy for two or three days, and whatever he's got, I've got anyway, so it doesn't matter. And that started it for me from 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 that point on, I was like, I will do the most appropriate thing. I'm not going to go overboard. I'm not going to wear a spacesuit. Cliff eventually pushed administrators at San Francisco General Hospital to open a ward dedicated completely to patients with AIDS. He said his experience with his roommate showed him how much fear there was with this new disease. And he saw that same fear throughout the hospital. And, you know, one of the things that I saw uh, was particularly out on the regular medical units was that the patients were left alone. I mean, their their meal trays were piled up outside their doors. Their rooms were never cleaned. You know, they weren't receiving the basic care that, that they were supposed to be receiving. And I found that just completely unacceptable. Cliff took pride in providing a human touch to his patients. He believed people with AIDS deserved that as much as anyone else. So on the new ward, which was called 5B, 
he and his team were insistent that extra precautions like gloves and masks and spacesuits would be used only when absolutely necessary. My own personal experience being a nurse and knowing that that, you know, when you wear gloves, sure, there are times when you have to, but when you don't have to, when you touch somebody with latex, it doesn't feel natural. And the message you're conveying is, you know, I don't fully accept you. And that's putting it politely. Cliff said his Catholic faith drove him to stand up for his patients, even when doctors and other nurses were skeptical. And at first, it was pretty much set up like a hospice unit because AIDS was a terminal disease in the beginning. But it was just this wonderful place of beauty and respite, acceptance, um, and a lot of touch, a lot of caring. And, And there was so much. There was laughter. There was food. There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of grief. But it's one of the things I'm really proud about. The gay community is bearing the brunt of it. But even here in San Francisco, the fear of getting AIDS has spilled over into the straight community. I have found David, my servant. Back at the parish, remember, the outreach to the gay community was well underway. But Father Tony was concerned. In many San Francisco churches, the AIDS epidemic has even caused a controversy about whether the congregation should continue to drink wine from the communal chalice. AIDS was scaring some of the older parishioners, and the gay community needed help as many men became sick. He wanted the two communities to work together, so he called on Cliff to lead education workshops. But there was a lot of fear and hysteria around AIDS, and San Francisco was not exempt from that. I mean, people were afraid. I remember, you know, early in the epidemic when you'd be on the Muni, and as the Muni was going through the Castro, you know, people would say, hold your breath, we're going through the Castro. So there was a lot of hysteria, a lot of misinformation, and a lot of people, you know, thought, oh my God, this disease is going to be transmitted to everyone, and it's these people's fault, and they're going to kill us all. Father Tony said Clift helped put the parish community at ease. He prepared parishioners to step up. Can you tell me a little bit more about, like, what he did at the parish? Like, where were these? Well, like, once in a while, he would have a conference after the Mass, explaining what AIDS was about. He had a really tremendous uh, ministry himself that way. I mean, I think he thought of what he was doing as bringing light to people's lives and helping them kind of stabilize in a difficult situation. As the crisis in the Castro worsened, most Holy Redeemer responded. At this point, gays were fully integrated into parish life. Father Tony estimates that by the time he left in 1990, more than three-quarters of parishioners were gay men. Gay men held leadership roles alongside older folks. A sense of community was thriving. But the parish wasn't immune from the challenges facing gay Catholics elsewhere. You recall the letter the Vatican published in 1986? It called homosexual inclination a, quote, objective disorder. That letter angered gay Catholics throughout the world and it was no different at Most Holy Redeemer. But Father Tony told me he didn't want to ignore the letter or let tensions simmer. So he invited a few theologians to visit for a town hall-style meeting. More than 150 people came, asked questions, learned about what the letter said. Father Tony said that afterwards, many parishioners still disagreed with the teaching, but they kept coming to Mass and remained part of the parish. 
If you've listened to the first three episodes of Plague, you'll remember that in New York, tensions were high between the gay community and the archbishop there. In San Francisco, there were also protests by gay activists against the church. Some LGBT Catholics asked the church to treat them with more respect. But things on the whole seemed a bit more calm here, in part because San Francisco's archbishop, John Quinn, reached out to gay Catholics as early as 1983. His archdiocese released a document that asked priests to take the concerns of gay people seriously. The document noted that gay Catholics seek, quote, a church where he or she will find acceptance, understanding, and love. Priests were reminded that many gay people see their sexual orientation as a good thing. Cliff remembers that Archbishop Quinn also had a willingness to listen and learn. He was, he was a wonderful, warm human being. I think at first he was trying to feel his way with it. He, he highly respected uh, Father Tony McGuire, and he was willing to listen to him. Um, and Archbishop Quinn listened to me. And he immediately started asking me questions about, you know, was it safer for us to continue using the communion cup and things like that. I very quickly became kind of, kind of his advisor on HIV and AIDS issues. So um, from day one, I never felt any resistance from Archbishop Quinn. So you felt like you had support from both your parish and the diocese? In, in yes. Of- With a nod of approval from the Archbishop, this strong community of gays and greys came together to respond to the onset of AIDS. Effectively, it was all hands on deck. It seemed everyone at the parish was being asked to help out, including Ramona Michaels. I came to work here in 1990, and uh, I heard they need a secretary, needed a secretary, and I uh, applied, got the job. Ramona became the parish secretary at Most Holy Redeemer in 1990. She says that for whatever reason, she was never afraid of people with AIDS. I belonged to a square dance group, which met in the park. As soon as I came over here, I joined the square dance group. And and, uh, we were doing a do-si-do and going around. And one guy came towards me with, and I forget the name, it's those, they have splotches all over. It's called Scarposi something or other. And he came, and you know you're dancing. So I just grabbed his arm, and it went through my mind. What do you do? You do what you have to do. But I had no fear. I had no fear. I, I was educated enough to know that I, was gonna, I wasn't going to catch it by just touching you. While working at the parish, Ramona saw firsthand how the community at Most Holy Redeemer helped people with AIDS. There was a support group that met at the parish, and there was the buddy program that served the entire neighborhood. Volunteers were paired up with people with AIDS to help with cooking and cleaning, to give rides to doctor's appointments, and to just sit together. For people visiting the parish, Ramona was often the first person they encountered. She remembers especially the parents of young men with HIV and AIDS who sought help from the priests at Most Holy Redeemer. I didn't have to, but I figured I'd educate myself since I was working here. I needed to know everything. So I thought. And uh, so then working here, I certainly got to know everything, and uh, especially the parents who came to see, or came to ask to see the priest. Interestingly enough, only women. I didn't see the fathers come. And the women 
couldn't make eye contact, dropped their eyes when I opened the door to usher them in to see the priest. I know now it was out of shame. <clears throat> At the time, I was puzzled because I'm a mother myself, and I thought, how do you... Don't, don't, don't lift up your eyes. This is your son. She saw her role as being someone who could provide quiet solace to people affected by the crisis. But her family was not totally on board. Like a lot of people at the time, they were afraid. There was a lot of fear. My family was scared for me. And they talked about it a lot in the beginning. Ma, how could you go to work there? And I said, well, I feel I belong there. You know, I'm very comfortable and, and I'm fine with the disease, the disease. It, it was just another illness to me. Ramona and a lot of the other people I interviewed remember the older woman of the parish as instrumental to its AIDS ministries. Father Tony actually saw the sick men and the older woman as having something important in common. We had a dinner around Christmas time in the rectory, and one man got up and read about the trials of being a gay man and the attentions it brings in his life. And then there was a, an old widow in the parish who was there, and she said, well, I have the same thing. So what was very helpful, it was kind of a, a sharing and a leveling. Each person was struggling in different ways and needed the community and the help of others and the help of the Lord to do so. Cliff said he was impressed with the willingness of these women to get involved, even if at times they struggled to figure out their new roles. Oh, the older women, they always wanted to hold everybody. You know, they're my boys. I want to hold their hand. I want to, you know, I feel like, you know, I can... You know, I can um, uh, wipe the sweat from their brow and I can make them comfortable and, you know, they don't have a mother and I can be their mother. And so we spend a lot of time training and educating them that, okay, you can have those qualities, but you're not here to mother somebody. You're here to really support them. That was one of the more difficult things to get across, but they quickly got it and they were wonderful. Even though there was intense suffering at this time in the Castro, people told me there were also lighter moments. There were times when people with HIV and AIDS could forget for a bit that they were sick and just be themselves. Thomas Ellerby is one of those people. Today, he's a 55-year-old retired property manager who lives in the Bay Area. He started attending Most Holy Redeemer in the 1980s. He says he was attracted to the parish because it seemed to offer him a space where he could be himself. And as he told me, those spaces were not always easy to find. I mean, I, I had like the, the, like the triple discrimination going against me. One, I was black. Two, I was gay. And three, I had AIDS. So there was a lot of discrimination to go around. And like I said, I think that what kept me with all that was the Catholic faith. And, I, and it's the honest God truth. That's the only answer I got for you is it's, it's, it's that I kept my faith. Thomas says he grew up very Catholic. The woman who raised him told him to always live within walking distance of a Catholic church. He says he's followed that advice, and he still goes to Mass daily today. I asked Thomas how Most Holy Redeemer helped him feel human. 
His mind went immediately to Christmas parties the parish hosted after the gays and greys had fully integrated. Thomas says those parties energized him, helped him forget his challenges for an evening. You know, the gay community does it big. I mean, they, they do it real big. I remember this one Christmas party. One of the parishioners worked at the Marriott Hotel. And I think that he was like the one that runs the whole hotel. We went to a Christmas party. You walked in there. They had the ice sculptures. They had candy. They even had a train running around with candy. You felt like you were in like Candyland. He remembers the parties getting a little wild. People dressed in outrageous costumes and just let loose. And Thomas said the church basement was transformed into a Christmas wonderland. And it was so decorated. I mean, and the food. I think that the guy that ran the, uh, the Marriott had the chef come in there and prepare the food. And it was so nice. It was almost like you were in a, in a five-star restaurant or you were just in like the most richest hotel. But it was it was out of this it was out of the world. But um, they've always and then we um, somehow the support group they came up with uh, gifts. You know they had stockings, gifts, and everything. It just it made you feel really really good. And the this was so so funny. The the uh, the parish priest he came to the to the to the uh, to the Christmas party. Helping people feel human again was another important part of the ministry at Most Holy Redeemer. Well, I'll, I'll put it to this. It was, a, it was like the most fantastic escape from what was going on around you. You know, it was a safe place. It was a fun place. You felt so safe. Like I said, the only thing, the, the best way to describe Most Holy Redeemer, it was that they served the community. And it just so happened to be a gay community, and it happened to be, I would say, like ground zero for HIV and AIDS. Um, and they did not shy away from what the Catholic faith is, especially a Catholic church, which is to serve the community. And like I said, the best way to describe both the support group and the church is that they were in the business of saving souls and saving lives. That's all I can say. And they didn't look at race. They didn't look at anything else. They were there to help. And I'm here now. A parish made up of mostly gay men might seem radical at first. But Most Holy Redeemer is actually pretty traditional when you think about it. It did what parishes are supposed to do. It served everyone who lived in the area the gays, and the greys. It brought nearby residents closer together, forming a community of Christians who cared for each other. Parishioners went out and listened to people in the neighborhood. They offered practical ministries around AIDS care and education, help with basic things like cooking and cleaning, as well as mass and spiritual support. Most Holy Redeemer did what great parishes do. It gave the neighborhood a place to come together, to worship, to celebrate, to grieve, and to remember. When I visited Most Holy Redeemer, I noticed a couple of glassed-in bulletin boards outside. They contained flyers covered in rainbows. One said, God's inclusive love is proclaimed here. 
Something I thought about a lot during my visit was how easy it would be to think, yeah, of course the church in the middle of the Castro is friendly to gays. How could it not be? But the story of Most Holy Redeemer was never inevitable. The transformation of the parish was due in no small part to the Greys, a group of old church ladies who quietly welcomed their gay neighbors into the parish. And the gays, they claimed their space in the church so that others would know they have a place here too. On the next episode of Plague, how a Catholic sister responded to the growing HIV epidemic in the Midwest. You can't even begin to talk about AIDS. You can't begin to minister to AIDS. You can't even deal with it until you first face your own prejudices and biases. Michael Lachlan here, host of Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. This podcast took a lot of work and resources, and America wants to bring you more just like it. So please visit americamagazine.org donate and leave a comment with your gift to let us know what you think. That's americamagazine.org donate. And thank you. Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. It's a production of America Media. I'm your host, Michael O'Loughlin. This series was written and produced by me and Eloise Blondio. The executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Thanks to the team at America Media who helped make this episode happen. Kerry Weber, Father Sam Sawyer, Tucker Redding, and Isabel Seneschal. Sound design by Rebecca Seidel. Original music by Christopher McCormick. Art by Sean Tripoli and Allison Hamilton. Parts of this episode were recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York. This podcast was made possible through the generosity of Mark A. McDermott and Yuval David, whose gift honors and supports all LGBTQ persons and allies, past and present. Special thanks to Father Matt Link, Pete Toms, and the staff at Most Holy Redeemer Parish in San Francisco. For more about this episode, visit americamag.org plague. And let me know what you think by following me on Twitter at Mike O'Loughlin. That's M-I-K-E-O-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast comes from the Catholic Health Association. CHA represents the nation's largest group of non-profit healthcare providers, with more than 600 hospitals and 1,600 long-term care and other health facilities in all 50 states. The Catholic Health Ministry cares for one in seven patients in the U.S. Learn more at chausa.org.